just before Gary uh, comes up to, to start us on our new series on Romans, on the welcome table, we've put together this uh, bit of a reading plan. And so if you remember a while back, we did a reading plan to go through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, this is to take you through Romans in four weeks. And so there's a lot of benefit to seeing the big picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There's also a lot of benefit to putting your head down in one book over an extended period of time and really getting a good handle on that book. So uh, this takes you through Romans in four weeks. And <laughs> if you want to keep going, it would take you through Romans four times while we're in this series. So there's benefit to both of those aspects of reading. And this is just to help you uh, if you'd like, and some people have really enjoyed it in the past, to get a really good handle on the book of Romans. Okay? So that's available at the welcome table. All right. Wow, it's quiet all of a sudden. Well, my wife has left me for the morning. We've had our grandchildren since uh, yesterday morning and until tomorrow, and uh, Boys, I want to tell you, it's uh, bringing, it's, it's like a flashback. Uh, man, I was saying to Barbara, this is busy. It's like, and that's just two. Like, how does the Crummies and how do the McGuigans, like, who have about eight, and then, and the Smiths, I mean, you know, like, seriously. Barb made banana pancakes this morning for the kids, and my phone's got banana pancakes on it. I'm driving to the meeting this morning. And I'm looking around, I look down, and on the inside of the top of my leg are banana pancake drippings. <laughs> and it's like, seriously, I thought he didn't get them on me this morning. And Anyway. We don't do banana pancakes on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I, can, uh, I can see why you wouldn't do banana, but you see, we're out of practice, obviously. But it's been really good time. Well, uh, this morning we're going to... Uh, kick things off, and as uh, Brent has already mentioned, we are going to be, uh, over the next number of months, going through the book of Romans. And before you say, oh, the next number of months, and actually, count yourself fortunate, because if uh, we were in Bethlehem Baptist Church in Pennsylvania, and uh, if John Piper was uh, the lead pastor at the church, uh, he would have uh, you would have sat under him for over 225 messages on Romans. For 13 years, for 13 years, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London taught out of Romans virtually every Friday night. And over 366 times did he preach out of the book of Romans on Friday nights. So, obviously, the book of Romans has a lot to say to us. Bible Gateway, a very popular website, says that Romans is the fourth most preached book in the world. Behind, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark, and the book of Psalms. And so, you say, well, it's only number four, but pretty heavy hitters ahead of it. So, the, the, the book of Romans has a lot to say to us. Finally, Uversion, which is a leading Bible reading app, which I would highly recommend. It's been downloaded and is being used by over 123 million people. They say that just in 
looking at their statistics that they've produced in the year 2013, Romans chapter 8, so don't go anywhere when we do Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, get this, by their users only, was read an average of four times a second. The whole chapter was read over four times a second by its users. Now, they're pretty fast readers, (laughs) but you get the idea. It's been read a lot. Okay, so the letter to the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is a significant cornerstone of the New Testament. And I was thinking about this as we were coming, as I was coming in a meeting this morning about the words of Jesus in red. I don't know why that popped into my mind, but you know, some of you may have uh, a version of the Bible or uh, a printed copy of the Bible or online version where Jesus' letters, uh, Jesus' words are printed in red, eh? And as I was riding, uh, coming to the meeting this morning, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, these are Jesus' letters. They might as well be in red too. Because you see, we have a Christologic view of Scripture that Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation. And that the entirety of Scripture reveals Jesus. The entirety of Scripture is the word of Jesus. Jesus said that he is the Logos. He is the living word. So what about Paul's letter to the Romans, and I would have to, in doing the first message, no pressure, the first message on the book of Romans, it's, it's important to, I guess, paint the picture a little bit, which I'm going to do very briefly, then I'm going to get into the heart of the matter this morning. So first off, obviously, the letter to the, book, the, letter to the Romans is composed by Paul. It was actually scribed to his friend Tertius in approximately 57 to 58 A.D. It was just as Paul was finishing his third missionary journey while in the area of Corinth in Greece. So he was between missions, and he intended in his next mission to go to Spain, but first what he had to do was he had to go to Jerusalem to drop off some money that was given by the various churches along his journey. He was going to bring money to them, and then it was there that uh, he was going to actually, he was going to give money to the Jerusalem church that was given by Gentile churches. And, you know, Paul was stretching, Paul was stretching uh, the Jewish church because he had, a, he had it in his heart for the gospel to go to all peoples, all nations, and that included the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And so he was stopping in Jerusalem, and then he was going to go on his way to Spain. He was going to go to Rome, and he had, a, he had a message that was burning on his heart for the Romans. So what about the Romans, and why write to them at all? Well, the Jews were among the first to have heard the gospel, as we know. And so if you consider uh, the day of Pentecost and Peter getting up there, this is that which, you know, that whole thing where he preached and over, uh, was it three, five thousand? Three thousand were saved in, an, in, in one message. Amazing. Well, it's thought that some of the Jews that were there, in fact, we know that some of the Jews that were there were from Rome, and it's thought that these Jews helped establish the Roman church. And so, there was a, a fantastic outpouring of the Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter 2. Planted uh, were churches in Rome. And so the, Jewish, or the, Ro- the Roman church originated in the synagogue. And uh, they had Gentile converts that were brought into the church. Now, something, something happened 
something happened in uh, the year A.D. 49 that really impacted that really impacted the church in Rome, and that was was that the that the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, he basically expelled the Jews from the city because he was sick and tired of hearing about Christus, about Jesus. And so he kicked them out of Rome, figuring that that would solve the problem. However, what happened is the non-Jews, the non-Jews stayed. They weren't kicked out. They weren't the problem. But the Roman church thrived. The Roman church grew at an exponential rate. And the Gentile church, what was a Jewish church, a Jewish-based church in the synagogue in Rome, then became a Gentile, a Gentile church. And it was a Gentile-dominated church. By the time of Paul's letter, however, the, the Roman, uh, the Roman ex, ex, expulsion of the, of the Jews had abated, and the Jews were starting to trickle their way back into Rome, and so they were back into the church. Now, can you imagine, they ended up back in the same churches that they had left. However, in the interim period, the Gentiles were leading the church, and so there were some social challenges, as you can imagine some cultural challenges that would have taken place. And so Paul has it in his heart to address that in his book, in his letter to the Romans. So this reflects, if you read the book of Romans, it reflects, reflects a dual audience. There's a dual audience. And so that of the, you know, there's this theme of, of Paul addressing the tensions that are there. In fact, in, as we go through the book of Romans, and I'm sure one of the guys will be talking about that. Because Paul actually scolds the Gentiles later on in the book of Romans. Because he wants to correct some of the mistakes that they had made. And so what Paul wants to do is to unpack the gospel for the Gentiles and the Jews in the Roman church. And so the theme of this letter is the gospel. The theme of this letter is the gospel. What it is and how it impacts, and how it has the power to change individuals and bring people from diverse backgrounds, in this case, Jews and non-Jews, in our case, people of all nations, tribes, tongues, everybody, First Nations, French, English, you pick them, they're included. The gospel, or good news, is that God has intervened in our history in order to reestablish His lordship over a created world that has rebelled against Him. Paul especially emphasizes that God has offered the opportunity to all human beings through simple faith in Christ to be placed in right standing before God. That's the intro. So you get the idea. Paul had a purpose in writing to the Roman church. He was writing to the church to prepare them for his visit. So, our scripture verse today, I have... Two, two essential verse, verses, and so we're going to be out of Romans chapter 1. I have two essential verses and two to help in the preliminary part. So I'm going to put them up on the screen. Actually, the guys will. So the first one is Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and then we're going to move to uh, verses 16 and 17. So let's read this together. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, so we're talking about God promising the go- uh, his gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, 
who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the underlying theme of the book of Romans, and I'll tell you, this was not an easy message to prepare. Because Romans is so packed full of solid biblical truth, theological truth, that has so much application in our lives for so many different things. I was like pulling my hair out all week trying to say, how am I going to do this? But then, I just kind of had that breakthrough moment yesterday after all this reading and reflecting and praying this week. The overarching theme of this book is the gospel. So we start with, we start with the gospel that is the good news that the gospel is not so much an it, the gospel is Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is him. It is Jesus. And so the first point, if you're taking notes, is the gospel is Jesus. It's a declaration of God's righteousness. So the gospel here is, if you want to define it, it's a declaration of God's righteousness where the perfection and holiness of God are seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and where his holiness and perfection are transferred to us. Think about that. The perfection of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, are given to us. It's called imputed righteousness. We are given, we are given this standard by Jesus. We're now, therefore, because of that, because of this gospel, we're set free from the power of sin and forgiven. In fact, we're at peace with God, whether you realized it or not, you were enemies with God prior to the gospel raising you to life. We sang these songs this morning. You stand alone, I stand amazed, Jesus, only Jesus. You can only sing those songs. You can only express that from your heart if you've been set free from the power of sin, forgiven, and if you're at peace with God. How can you worship God if you're not at peace with him? This good news, the good news of the gospel, is intensified by virtue of the fact that in this great salvation, we also receive, and this is so awesome, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who seals this truth as a reality in our lives, enabling us to be restored not only with God as our Father, but with each other. It's vertical, but the natural outworking of that must be that it's horizontal. It must be. This past few weeks, I've been struck so much by so many stories of God doing that very thing of wanting to have us seek 
the restoration of relationships horizontally, and that can only be done because our relationship with God has been restored vertically. God is calling us, as difficult as it is, as difficult as it is, to restore the relationships that we have with each other. And I'm not just talking about those that we sit with here. Wherever and whatever those relationships look like, wherever they're at, whatever they look like, God is calling us to that. That's difficult. But I want to say, it's not even a smidge as difficult as it was for Jesus to take upon himself our shame and our sin and bear it upon himself on the cross, as it says in the scriptures, becoming sin for us. And us receiving, in exchange, grace and mercy, that which we didn't deserve, so that we don't get what we do deserve, which is death. That's an amazing thing. So like I said, this is not just about a description of what grace is or about what the gospel is. This is about defining the gospel in terms of the person of Jesus. So the best way to define the gospel is appropriate to say that the gospel is embodied in his person and it's reflected in his spirit. So in that case, such good news. It's such good news. It's amazing truth. The gospel. Secondly, in verse 17, you can just leave the scripture up, the, oh, the scripture, yeah. Actually, go back to, I just want to, so what I did when I, if you go back to the first verse, please, I, in, in my notes, I just have the gospel, dot, 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 Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> it's like, take out that whole, the gospel, Jesus. Go to the next one, please. So verse 17 the gospel is righteousness revealed. It's righteousness revealed. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul's hung up on the good news, and rightly so, because it raised his dead self to life. It's righteousness revealed. The promises of the Old Testament prophets are finally come to light. See, Paul would have been so familiar as the Pharisee's Pharisee. He's familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He's familiar with, he, I mean, he had huge swaths of the Old Testament memorized as a Pharisee. And in one section of the scripture, he talks about, you know, how, you know, he was that guy. If there's anybody who has any reason to boast, it's him. And so he would have been thoroughly familiar with the content of the Old Testament, in fact, what he would just refer to as the scriptures. The promises of the prophets are finally come to light. All through the Old Testament, and there are over 400 prophecies, foretellings concerning the coming Messiah. Like I said, 
the entirety of Scripture is about revealing Jesus. Even as they point forward to the Redeemer, his identity and means by which the promised redemption would occur was still a mystery. It was still a mystery. The Scriptures are full. The pre-New Testament Scriptures are full of the hints of his coming. And this, of course, with the, with the people of Israel and those that were brought in by Israel who were non-Israel. Let's remember them. Let's remember the Ruths. The ones that were brought in. The ones that were swept up. It bred in anticipation all these prophetic utterances and bred an anticipation in the people for who was to come. And it also bred a longing for his coming. Isaiah 46 and 13. It's funny when you, you see a scripture you've read before and all of a sudden you see it again and it's like, ooh. Isaiah 46, 13 says this. I am bringing my righteousness near think of Emmanuel, God with us. I am bringing, bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. His righteousness. It's like, I can't even understand or comprehend how they would have understood or comprehended that, but they probably wouldn't have comprehended it with the privilege that we have today. Well, they wouldn't have. Because Paul says it wasn't revealed. Isaiah 51, 5 and 6. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation will not be delayed in 46, 13. And then it says, my righteousness draws near speedily. I can just imagine them saying, well, it's not fast enough. How often do we say, your righteousness, God, your purposes in my life, you're saying it speedily. Well, it's not very quick. At the right time. At the right time. Just in time. At the right time. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look to the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. We lift up our eyes. We lift up our eyes. You're the giver of life. We now know who that is, who this is speaking of. Paul shows us that this revealed righteousness is Jesus himself. He is the mystery that we've come to discover. If you want to read about that, just go to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, which I won't go into now, but the mystery of Christ revealed. And one of the hallmarks 
of this revealed mystery is that he brings together Jew and Gentile. He brings together those peoples who shouldn't be together. He brings them together. How do we know that, how do we know that, that this, this is real? How do we know? Because look at us. Look at us who are together this morning. If it wasn't for Jesus in this gospel, would we be to gather together this morning? Seriously. I mean, I really, I mean, I love you guys, and I like you guys, but Jesus is our common denominator. We wouldn't be together if it wasn't for Jesus. Oh, we'd be, some of us might be in little cliques or groups because we're interested in such and such and so and so or whatever. We'd have our, have our clubs. And we see that proliferation of that all around. Actually, that's kind of like a prophetic longing. If you look in society and you see people getting together and under different banners, you know, it's like, you know, I remember, you know, coming to church, uh, coming to church meetings when the kids were young, we'd be driving down Main Street and all of the bikes would be lined up in, in, in front of Frank's Finer Diner on Main Street and Joel would say, yep, biker church. He was like eight years old. <laughs> Bike church. It's kind of prophetic. See, there's something built into the human heart that wants us to be together. But the expression of that without Jesus is, is marginalized to our interests, right? And so, how diverse can that be? And how sure-footed can it be? But the mystery has been revealed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this. It is because of him, because of Jesus, or because of God, that we're in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, just in case you're curious, therefore as written, don't boast about it, but boast in the Lord. It's not your doing. Jesus did it. As I said earlier, this righteousness of God has been given to us, but not by anything we've done to earn it. It's a free gift of God, and we boast in Him. We brag about Him. We brag about Him this morning when we sing our songs about Him. We brag about Him, don't we? We brag about Him. It's my Jesus. But we don't just brag about Him. We tell him how good he is. See, it's not just about, it's not just about God, it's to God. You see, we, we, can, we can sing all our songs about him, but let's not, let's not forget that we have unfettered access into his presence, and we are there positionally 24-7, and so that opens, up, that opens up the runway for us to be experientially in his presence as much as we want to be. This is not just a head game. It's a heart one, primarily.
Would we say that Jesus, being the righteous one of God, has a perfect character? Absolutely. Were there any debts with his father that were unpaid? Of course not. Jesus walked this earth, yet was without sin, tempted in every way that we are, but didn't sin. You say, oh yeah, well that's easy. He was the son of God. Ah, not so quick. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He lived obediently. I don't understand it, you know. I don't think we ever will. But he was tempted to sin just as we are, but yet didn't. Oh, a piece of cake. Jesus said, no, no. He resisted. He resisted. And he fought with his word. Jesus was good, holy, spotless, in perfect relationship as the Son of God. Perfect relationship with his Father. That he, that he built, that he worked at. I mean, there's that, there's that tension, that dynamic tension of being, being divine and yet being human. Don't understand it, never will. But, but it just, it, it, he spent time with his Father. He didn't get a free pass. And yet, we're the recipients of this righteousness that Jesus had and has. We're the recipients. That's the scandal of grace. It's scandalous. I mean, it truly is scandalous. On our men's weekend, Bart Bile uh, spoke on the Friday night, and it was such a lucid word. I mean, it was such a good word. But the thing that the keeper, the keeper part of it that, that got me in, in all of the depth of that word, and, and I, if you ever want to listen to that, 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 was, that was just such a lucid, clear word about, about Jesus. But he, says, he said something to this effect, because this is an exact quote, but this you'll get the essence of. We are brought into, get this now, we're brought into a father-son relationship as real as the relationship between Jesus and his Father. The same one. Same one. We're brothers and sisters in and to Christ. You can't do anything to earn that. It's so secure, it's forever, eternal, final. Righteousness revealed. Which brings me to my next point, that the gospel is powerful, it saves, and it's so offensive. And if you're offended, if you're offended by my saying that we have the same relationship with the Father that Jesus does, good. Should be. <laughs> it's offensive. It's a scandal of grace. You can't earn that. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The word ashamed, prop, uh, appropriately translated, is translated offend, offensive or offended. I'm not offended. 
And the gospel is offensive. It truly is. Firstly, salvation is free and undeserving. That offends religious people. Religiously minded people who think that they have it over less than moral persons. It's offensive. That You mean tell me I don't have to do anything for this? No. It's insulting in that the truth, the truth is, is that we're sinful. Wicked, in fact. Apart from God, we're lost. So it quashes the fallacy that we're basically good. Sin is an offensive concept. When is the last time in the media that you heard the word sin? It's absent from the media unless they're making fun of us. It's a retired concept. Don't say sin. It's offensive, folks. Remember the gospel's a person? What did Jesus say? He says, I'll be a stumbling block. Jesus is offensive. Offensive because we have to come to God through Jesus. His exclusivity is offensive. It means that we can't find our own path to God. So our autonomy as humans is not just jeopardized. Our autonomy is massively threatened and destroyed because we are not our own. We are not our own. It's offensive because in following Jesus, we're not guaranteed an easy life. Suffering's part of the deal. Difficulties are part of the deal. They're not intrusions, as Peter Scazzaro says in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The difficulties we experience in life, they're not alien intrusions into our life. The difficulties we experience are life. It happens. Suffering happens. We will face trials and tribulations. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Don't be surprised when you're made fun of. Don't be surprised at any of that. Don't be surprised when, when, when tough things happen. We, I mean, we've somehow swallowed this Western lie that, that troubles and difficulties, death, dying, separations, difficult relationships, that these are intrusions into our life. They're actually, that's life. And Jesus gives us the strength by His Spirit to overcome in those things so that we're not victimized by them, but that we can go over the wall. If you remember Jeremy Simpkins last year, we can go over the wall. We are a fruitful vine. We go over the wall. Those things will come to pass. Suffering is part of it. Life will have its challenges, but we have the presence of the Spirit in us. You see, the gospel's offensive precisely because of its power. We have an enemy that's blinded the eyes of unbelievers, and in fact, I dare say, we have an enemy that I think has blinded many believers. But the gospel is power. 
power in the Spirit, through the living Word. Paul realized this, that wise words won't cut it. We need a demonstration of His power. God, we need your power today. We need a demonstration of your power today. The words that come against us daily, whether in our minds or spoken to or about us, can be taken, you know, we can be taken captive by those things, but we take captive of them in the Spirit. It says in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. Ephesians 6 17 says that. We swing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus says, I am the Word. So, we need to know this gospel. We need to know this Jesus. The power of the gospel lifts up, transforms us by the power of the resident Spirit, both as individuals and corporately. We need only to be honest with God and with each other. And we'll see the dynamite power of the Spirit revolutionize how we view our situations and lead us to dynamic change. It leads us to change. The power of the Spirit changes things. Changes. It may not change the circumstance. Certainly change the way you view the thing. How many of you had circumstances that are pretty difficult and you are in a totally different mindset in how you look at them today because of the power of the Word? Huh? It's how we look at it. Circumstance might not change, but hey, I'm feeling so much better about it. Because we have a different view of it. We have more of an eternal view. The power changes minds. Previously unmoved. The power of the gospel restores hardened hearts once cold. Alters life's directions. Helps us see life with new eyes and restores broken relationships. Provides healing. Jody had that word about healing. Don't forget that. In fact, while Jody was speaking, um, when we hear that, and, and you know what? I believe that God heals physically. Definitely. But when she said that, I thought to myself, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit prompted me to say what I'm about to say. is like, when we hear, oh, healing, physical. There are some of us that we need healing mentally. We need healing in our emotions. We need healing in the way that we are perceiving life. And some of us are suffering. Some of us are suffering in our mental health. And Jesus is saying, I've come to give you life and give it to the full. Short, the gospel fueled by the Spirit equips us to live this message to the world. Prayer is dangerous. Prayer, the communication with Jesus, simply just walking with him, it's the currency of the Spirit. The prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Simple prayer, the simple words, reveal yourself to me, Lord. Reveal yourself to me, Lord, in a way that I can understand. Some of you, and, and this is me from time to time, I, I, I forget just to say, reveal yourself to me, Jesus. Reveal yourself to me. We need his life revealed to us in a way that we can comprehend, a way we can understand. Because it's not one size fits all. 
And Jesus respects your individuality. He respects who you are. And the power of the gospel wants to reach you where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up first. I was just taken aback in the last few weeks. I, I read an amazing biography by a guy named Nabil Qureshi. And this guy was raised a devout Muslim. And in this book, he gives an amazing testimony of growing up. And we don't even get to his conversion until three quarters of the way through the book. I mean, such detail. It was an amazing, amazing sweep. And it caused me just to have such a heart for uh, those in our culture who are Muslim. And especially with, you know, us receiving refugees. I mean, it takes things like that sometimes for us to kind of wake up. Talking about myself. And uh, he says, you know, in the Muslim world, they don't, Muslims, he says, we, didn't, we don't believe in a personal relationship with God. But we do believe this. We do believe that when or if God speaks to us, he does so in dreams and visions. So Muslims believe in dreams and visions. And he prayed that prayer, would you reveal yourself? I want to know if you're really God. And in one vision and three dreams, Jesus revealed himself. He says, I'm pretty daft, it took three dreams. <laughs> and he now, years later, and this guy's only in his early 30s, travels with, you may have heard of Ravi Zacharias, travels with Ravi Zacharias all over the world apologizing the gospel. Amazing. I encourage you, I encourage you to find that book, uh, finding, or Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And we'll put it on our website. Somehow we'll get it up there. But you, you should, if nothing else, just, we'll also put a link up to one of his talks where he gives his testimony and does a Q&A. Amazing stuff. Reveal yourself to me. And lastly, the gospel is received by faith. Verse 17b says, A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. So what do we do if we can't merit this great salvation? We believe. Paul says we have faith for faith. God draws us to himself by his spirit. He makes a way for us where there seems to be no way at all. He goes to the extent and grace to save, as the old hymn says, the vilest offender. We're never far from his righteous right hand, even the ones that you and I think of as most unsavable. Doesn't get any simpler. The just shall live by faith. God gives faith for us to believe. I want to close with the story of two people who through their encounter with the book of Romans experienced in a miraculous way what I've been speaking about this morning. The first you've no doubt heard of Augustine. In the summer of 386, a man named Augustine, a native of North Africa, who had for two years been the professor of rhetoric at Milan, at a school in Milan, a university in Milan at the time, sat weeping in the garden of his friend Alpius. He had been raised by his Christian mother, but he turned his back on her faith. He sought truth elsewhere, deciding to live as he felt and to do 
what he thought was right and just to go out and do whatever. Lived, in, his, in this case, a very sexually promiscuous lifestyle, actually fathered a child out of wedlock. And, but his thing was, you know, you're not the boss of me. Sound familiar? Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. So his way wasn't very dissimilar to the way most people of our society live today. But he writes this. The tumult of my heart. So he obviously wasn't happy. The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden of his friend where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly, I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, pick up and read, pick up and read. I took the book of the apostle, that is Paul in the book of Romans. I opened it and in silence read the first passage on which my eye was drawn to. It says this, not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and in indecencies, but up upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I put myself and make no provision for the flesh. He says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety, get that? Anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. No further would I read, he said, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And in that very moment, from one sentence in the book of Romans, the church received the great Augustine, the framer of much of its theology. Don't tell me what to do. I'm the boss of me. Luther in the early 1500s, a German monk who had been taught that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. And so, he learned to hate God. First, for asking of him something he couldn't do, and then leaving him <clears throat> to fail in the attempt. Then Luther read our text today. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And he writes... Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. The result? Only the recovery of the gospel in Europe and the Protestant Reformation. So, who of these are we? Who of these two personality types are we? Are these people? They're really two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Self-sufficiency. The first one, I can do it myself. Leave me alone. You're not the boss of me. The second one, it's that legalistic heart that says, I'm going to keep the rules, as if there's some imaginary scale that says, you know what, I can offset the wrath of God, and so whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. Some of us try to, to live a good life thinking that we're going to tip the scales. It'll either leave you one of two people. It'll either leave you 
arrogant and full of pride, thinking that you got it over somebody, or to leave you like Luther, completely frustrated and hating everything that's godly. Which of them are we? Let's stand. I invite John to come and his team. See, we love and serve a God who has allowed us to come into an intimate relationship with Him that's heart level. So these are not just theological truths, but they're theological truths that I like to say breathe life. And we can trust Him. We can say, Jesus, only Jesus, I stand amazed in your presence. So I just want to pray for us. I'm going to just turn it over to John, and Joe's going to close us this morning, and we are going to pray for people if you want prayer. But if there's anything in this message that has touched you in some way, love to pray for you. Let's just pray together as we embark in this journey through the book of Romans. Father, we just lift up our hands to you and we say that we love your gospel. We love your truth. We love the fact that you've revealed righteousness to us. His name is Jesus. We love the power of your gospel that has changed our lives, that's resurrected us from the dead, it's breathed life into us, and that we can call you Father. We love you. We say this morning that we love you. We say, God, that you are amazing, you're perfect, and you've given us Jesus. Father, this morning, would you heal our hearts? Would you help us to come into right relationship with you? In Jesus' name.